0: But when you're performing on stage, it's the only thing I've ever done where the three kind of parts of of the sort of the complete self are in action. Like you're physically doing something, like there's a physicality to performing music live. There's an intellectual challenge to perform music live, like you're constantly having to be aware to think how things are working. And there's an emotional part to perform your live. Cause if you can't summon the emotions, you can't perform the song very well. And so having those three things going at one time, especially when you're on stage with other musicians and you get that moment where everything's just in sync to me is, is like a, a drug that if they could package it, I would just become the first and best customer forever.
1: JCV Art Studio, Season 4. My name is Joanna. And if you're new, uh, a little about me I am the author of The Unraveling and Dealer's Child. I've just released a YouTube promotional video about the talented authors coming out on Season 4. And it is on my YouTube channel. It's just, yeah. <laughs> we were, I was just talking with our guest about pronunciations. Just look up Joanna Vanderfloek right on YouTube. (laughs) Actually, I will will connect that YouTube video to my website. That's much easier. Okay, so today I have an espresso. I'm ready. Sebastian de Castel is joining us. Sebastian has an interesting story on how he started writing, which I'm going to leave to him to talk about has to do with camping, which I'm not a big fan of, and being camping on an island. Now, Sebastian has been nominated in many awards and amazing awards. I'm just going to name a few here. He was the 2019 finalist in the Sunburst Canada Best Young Adult. 2019 again, the finalist in the Grand Prix d'Imaginaire France. For best form YA, the 2019 winner of the Centurion Award UK Best Novel, and I will have his website in the show notes. And just please ch- check out the the awards. And there's a beautiful <laughs> Bookness Fantasy Award because I remember when I was um, researching researching Sebastian, I just stopped. And it was one of those moments when your face comes closer to the screen because you're looking at the picture of the award. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. And he won that in 2018 for Saint's Blood. So today, we're going to talk about his fantasy novel, Way of the Agorsi, book one of the Agorsi. Sebastian, welcome.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here good.
1: i'm I'm always glad people say that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good. true
1: good. So, please, can you explain how you became a writer a writer or became interested in writing fantasy in particular with that particular island?
0: Well, yeah, like you, i uh, I actually don't enjoy camping very much. Um, which is actually why I abandoned archaeology as a career four hours into it was because I discovered archaeology is basically like camping, <laughs> but where is. you use a toothbrush in the dirt all day. Um, it's uh, so. What happened was when I was 16, and I was going through the existential angst of which all of us go through, I think, uh, in our teenagers, and and I think many of us actually continue to do uh, through the through most of our lives. I was uh, camping by myself on an island. Uh, one of those many, many attempts to simultaneously kind of delve into, uh, the, 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 the wilderness, uh, to sort of achieve some spiritual understanding and, uh, get out of the way of my family who desperately wanted me to just get out of their way for a a few days. Um, and I was having a weird time of it. There is something very strange about camping by yourself and just wandering by yourself. Um, where you feel sort of progressively in some ways, more isolated from the world and more kind of confused about your place in it. And I was one of these kids, like I had no, I didn't have even the big sort of dreams of like, well, I want to be a famous celebrity or a movie star. or I want to be rich. I, I, I was just um, kind of completely lost. And at one point I was waiting for a ferry to go from one Island to the next. There's all these beautiful islands off the coast of British Columbia. Yeah. And I was sitting there, and I got there. Uh, I missed the ferry, so I had like a four or five hour wait for the next one. And I, um, I had picked up this book in uh, off a, a bookstore rack called "Bard" by an Australian author named Keith Taylor. And he's still around, and he's still writing, and he's a really lovely guy. Um, And I started reading this book and and it was about a character named Feldman McFarl, who is this uh, kind of, I think it's eighth century Irish bard who, you know, travels through this world, you know, swinging a sword, playing music, uh, singing songs, going on adventures and telling stories. And and that was kind of my moment. Um, That was that sort of kind of shocking, revelatory moment where I went you know what i need to be a bard that's that's what i want that's the life for me that's why i haven't been able to make sense of things like astronaut or business person or or any of the other things they didn't that wasn't it it's i need to be a bard um regrettably uh, when you check out the help wanted ads um <laughs> either in newspapers or online there there are precious few jobs for bards and so what that kind of did to me was it spurred me to go on to a career where I kind of I just sort of did everything. Um I wandered through, you know, uh everything from being a full time touring musician to I was a fencer and then choreographed sword fights for the stage. Mm-hmm. Um and and ultimately uh became a and did tons of traveling and, and then ultimately became a novelist. And so mm-hmm. I got my sword fighting and my travel and my adventure and my music and my uh and my writing and my storytelling. Um, but, I, but I, in what I feel like is almost a, a, a sort of a, a metaphor or analogy, if you will, of what I think younger people are going through today in today's world. Um, I had to build that career out of many different things because no one was really going to create that job for me. Um, but that's how I ultimately became a fantasy author. Yeah.
1: That's a cool story. Oh, OK. Cool. All right. Okay, this is going to be good. Okay, so now I'm not going to ask your least favorite question. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) But instead, I'm going to ask the question I asked science fiction author Edward Willett. So thinking of what you've just said, okay, as I'm reading the opening chapter, there is a battle scene. My gosh, you must have I'm sorry, you must have fun with the battle scenes just thinking about you mentioned fencing in there okay the battle scene between the jantep mages and the Madek and they are exiled and i couldn't help it but as i'm reading it i was wondering when you're plotting a novel do you find current world events flavor what's going to happen
0: well, it's interesting, I almost think it happens in reverse. So for context, you know, in that in that scene, yeah, the the Madec are a people that already lost all the wars, yeah. you know, 300 years before. They're the refugees. they're all that's left. And the um, the Jean Tap who are this uh, quite magical society, the ones that kind of defeated them, took their cities, Uh, And and exile them. They kind of continue to persecute them because they have this this lingering fear. Uh, And this is one of the areas that I'm kind of interested in that comes up in the book that often conquerors have a lingering fear of the conquered. Like we know what we did to them. If if we allow it, they'll do it to us one day. What happens if things do become actually equal you know somebody's going to come after us to to kind of make there's that that, that kind of fear that builds resentment. And so the Jeanantep sort of continue to kind of hunt down um these MADEC refugees um and so, you know, what's odd, and, and there's two parts to the answer, and I apologize uh, mm-hmm. if it feels a bit rambling, but I'll, I'll try to get it in a, a little more focused. The, the The first part of the answer would be, I'd almost say, no, it, it happens in reverse. It's not that world events flavor, or, or it's not the world events influence uh, what I then write in fantasy. It's that you write something in fantasy, and then world events seem to catch up somehow. Yeah. And and other authors that I've met have talked about this too. With like, you know, sometimes you're almost worried about it because you you write something, and then it's you know you write it long in advance of publication, often often about a year in advance, as you know, and sometimes more than that. And then all of a sudden, this this um, book is going to come out, and world events have suddenly ch- shifted. We're like, people are going to now interpret this book differently, and 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 so that's like one of the most interesting phenomenons about being a novelist is that is that because of that that time delay you know, you realize that um, everything that you write is going to be interpreted by whoever reads it when they read it. And so that's always going to continuously um, affect what the story ultimately becomes for them. The part that I'm not as sure about um, is that is whether to some degree that as novelists, especially in speculative fiction, where you're constantly saying, what if, what if, what if those what ifs aren't coming solely from yourself, they're coming from your experience of the world that you're living in and so there's a degree to which the you know there are these pressures out in the world you know these tensions you know if if we take for example and um you know the 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 war in ukraine yeah. right it's not as if it feels to us a lot of the time that that came out of nowhere but it's not as if it actually came out of nowhere the the, the signs are kind of there and there's a degree to which i think the more we, those of us who are privileged to be in a position where our jobs are to speculate about things, uh, you know, in a, in a non-literal way, like I'm going to write fantasy. What I'm going to write about, well, there's going to be battle, and There's this, that those things are in the back of your head. So I'm never sure whether world events, um, in whether, whether world events in, uh, alter the interpretation of what you've already written or whether some world events you can't help, but kind of almost not predict but but just pull out and then infuse into your work
1: yeah i i get it i, I totally get it yeah and uh i you know thinking about some uh, thinking about what you're saying about the jan Tepp, and mondek uh my mom was hungarian and she, that lady was ahead of her time so she grew up in hungary and she had said to uh, my my sisters and i that the border of hungary had changed so many times from different wars and then she had also said that you can't expect that overnight people are going to change after years and years and years of Hatred and and fighting, right? And this has nothing to do with the Ukraine, but just I'm thinking about your the Jean Tap in your book, right? Like, because it's the history. You have history with these mm-hmm. with these two groups.
0: Yeah, it, absolutely. And um, and there's and the, and that sort of constant tension is is elusive i think especially for younger people and of course at the beginning of this book Farius is is quite young it's this is very much the story of her kind of coming of age and and so for and and i think it was the same for us when we're when we're kids and you know we we it's not that we grew up in an with an egalitarian viewpoint it's that we often grow up with a somewhat a historical viewpoint We're like we see the world i think teenagers tend to see the world more accurately than adults because they see the world as it is, okay. um, you know, little kids see the world as it was explained to them. Um, you know, so the so the, it's a, I always talk about the difference between middle grade fiction and young adult fiction, which which I always find kind of entertaining. M- middle grade fiction in middle grade fiction, the world is fundamentally fair. Adults are slightly clueless, but it's basically <laughs> a good world where something bad is happening because somebody is interposing themselves into it. Someone's bringing badness into the world. When you're a teenager, is when you first discover actually the world is just fundamentally unfair. Um, and then you become an adult and you just accept that the world is unfair, but teenagers are the only ones who actually kind of rebel against that unfairness. Um, but, but often I think one of the reasons for that is because they're not as burdened by the sense of historical sort of inevitability, if you will, um, that a lot of us face. And so in, in, in way of the Argosy, to Farius, it's just a simple case of heroes and villains. You know, like when she first just perceives it. This is how it works. This is how we live. the The Jean-Tet mages, when they when they become uh, when they earn their mage's name, when they're young, you know, you know, sixteen, seventeen, um, the first thing they do is they form a little war coven and they go out and hunt down Madak to sort of prove how tough they are. Yeah. Um. And and that's just kind of how she sees it. Whereas from the Jeanne Tep perspective, one of the things she's forced to kind of come to see, um, they're just they're even though they think that they're these proud, powerful, we're fearless and all this, that stuff, they live in a constant state of fear. Yeah. Cause part of them just knows what they've done is, is wrong. And that toxicity kind of infuses their lives. Yeah. Um, and so very, you know, part of, part of way of the Argosy, in addition to being sort of, you know, a fantasy novel with lots of magic and adventure and all that stuff in it is, is kind of, a, a story of coming to grips with um, the humanity of people that you rightfully want to hate.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you kind of asked, answered my next question <laughs> about a summary or a hint of what way of the Gors- uh, Gorsi is about. Can you, so I'll tell you what, how about, can you tell us about the female protagonists? Various far facts and how she plays,
0: like in this story. Sure, Sure. and and you know, just just for context. I mean, ultimately, Way of the Argosy is is set in a kind of a a magical, wild west almost world. Um, And Farius is a young, basically a young refugee who's being hunted down by a group of uh, powerful war mages, and she's got nothing. She's got her, her tribe's been killed. She has no power. She has no money. She has no allies, but she's absolutely determined to fight back any way she can. And along the way, she meets uh, one of these sort of strange Argosi, who are kind of these wandering philosopher gamblers, yeah. and they're they're they don't have any magic at all, and yet they're the one group of people who seem to be able to outsmart. Uh, all these mages and all the and warriors and all these other people. And so this character, Daryl Brown, who she meets offers her a, a way to survive in this world, but at a cost that she may not be ultimately willing to pay. Yeah. So that's kind of, so it's very much uh, way the Argosy is sort of her origin and where she comes from is the spell slinger series, which is my young adult fantasy series that that's set in this world. And it's about a young guy named Kellen who is a Jantep mage. Uh, doesn't know all the horrors of, of his people and starts out ready to take his, his mage's trials only for his own magic to sort of disappear. And he meets this uh, this woman, uh, an older woman named Ferrius Parfax, who basically shows him this other path, the path yeah. of the Argosi, And that's what that six book series is about. And um, I love those books. It's been translated into 15 languages that's and it's sort of all over the world. Um, but one of the things that happened was uh, it was a six book series, and it, but it was an eight book contract with my publishers at the time. I don't know why they, they were they were competing at the time for the rights, and one of the ways that they competed was they said, "Well, those other guys are only buying four books; we'll buy eight books."
1: Oh my um, God, to have that dilemma. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah.
0: <laughs> It was, it, it was but it was a funny thing because because then almost immediately after the sign of the contract and an editor was assigned my editor said well we think six books is the right number and I said what do you want me to do with the other two and they yeah. said do whatever you want which is a very strange thing for a publisher oh. to say to to a novelist but um but I loved working with them and so when it was time to write those two books um I knew they would have kind of they kind of wanted something set in that world and I said well I get letters every day from People around the world who, who say, like, how do I become an Argosy? Like they want to learn about the seven talents and the four ways. And and because they sort of see it almost like the, you know, the, you know, like there's people who want to be Jedi. Yeah. Um, and I, and of course I can't teach someone how to do that. That's not what it's a, a, about. But uh, I thought, well, if I write about Farius's origins, yeah. um, then there's an opportunity for to kind of show people how how she became an Argosy. Um, and people can take from that what they will. Ultimately, you know, the the key to it all for me. And I was actually talking to a Hollywood director yesterday, of all things, and and we were talking about this. And I knew I knew I liked him from the day I first met him because he was the one person uh, I'd met from Hollywood who understood immediately that the point of the spell slinger books and the point uh, and all the magic is it um, is that is to show that human magic that the things humans could do, what we can do, music art, philosophy, Mm -hmm. martial arts, all of that, that that is the real sort of magic that's incredible about human beings, and not so much the I want to cast magic spells and fireballs to hurl at people. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's kind of where, um, you know, various uh, and the Argosy really comes into the picture is, for for me, what I love about writing those books is I love writing about the, the strange ways in which just very human things can, give us a, you know, really marvelous abilities. When you think about it, human beings are are, are absolutely terrible at everything, right? And <laughs> you know, compared to most, most creatures in the animal kingdom. And yet with all of these arts that we've created, yeah. you know, as a result of our civilizations, we we survive, right? We you know um, there's a there's an there's an old um, Steve Jobs quote uh, that's you know I, I steal from the the movie Steve Jobs because it was written by Aaron Sorkin, who's my favorite uh, one of my favorite writers. Um, where Steve Jobs sort of says this thing about you know the the the, the most um, efficient animal in the world is the condor, and the least efficient animal in the world is the human being. But when you put a human being on a bicycle, the human being actually becomes the most efficient animal in the world. Uh-huh. And so I always go, th- that's one of the reasons I love cycling trips and I love cycling because you realize like, like what an, what a miracle it is, right? That human beings created bicycles, that human beings created music, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so, a lot of that is, is kind of really where where it's rooted and where sort of Ferius comes from. And I think you had asked at one point uh, sort of earlier about you know why a female protagonist. and yeah. and uh, and 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 so it's really because she is an ex- she she wasn't the the main character of the Spellslinger series, but she was sort of my favorite character okay. of the Spellsinger series. And where she came about, which was which was really strange. And, and I, whenever I tell people this, um, the people who go, go off and read the Spellslinger books um, can almost immediately see it. When I was first writing Spellslinger, which again, you know, it's about the young 16-year-old guy, part of this magical society. He's like the reverse Harry Potter. Instead of discovering he's got magic, he's discovering he doesn't have magic. Um, and I wanted him to meet the sort of figure that would be kind of a cowboy philosopher who would kind of like guide him towards a different path. And I really had Sam Elliott in my head all the time. Yeah. If you re- remember Sam Elliott, the actor, yeah. who's who's just like literally like the coolest human typically when you when you watch him talk, he's got this incredible and deep voice. And he's, you know, that's not how you do it, boy. You know. And I, <laughs> um but but as as I was writing um the, the first spellsinger book, I I realized two things kind of hit me. And the one was I realized that in almost all of my books up till that point female characters almost always fit into one of three age groups. And this is going to come as no surprise to lots of people, but when you're, I don't know, when you're white dude, sometimes it does surprise you that <laughs> I, I was I was writing that they were either like very young girls, like 11, 12 years old who needed sort of protecting or 20 to 25 year old women who were sort of very, uh, you know, attractive and, or, you know, it's sort of this sort of, uh, this sort of perceived um, prime. And then I was, and then I'd write sort of women in their 60s and 70s, um, which are the classic, you know, the, the, of the of the like child maiden crone sort of thing which which we tend to infuse all our fiction, uh, a lot of our fiction of. And I thought, well, that's really weird because women actually mostly come into their own power as as do men like in their 30s and 40s. And so why am I, you know not doing that? And then it also occurred to me that it was weird that I'd be writing a mentor for Kellen, uh who was another who was a, a guy. Yeah. Um, because so many of the mentors in my own life were women, yeah. women in their thirties and forties and fifties. And so I thought, no, like, I think this story is way more interesting because part of what Kellen's trying to do is figure out how to become, you know, how to be, how to become a man and whatever that's going to mean for him. And to have a, 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 a woman be the one, the figure who is kind of helping him navigate that seemed interesting. And because that was part of my own life, that that's why she became, Instead of being, you know, the classic cowboy dude, she became this woman in her 30s and 40s. Uh, and one of the things that's really fascinating about it, I'm sorry, this is a long story, but yeah. I'll let it hear. This this phenomenon of, of women sort of at the peak of their kind of, I think, social uh, power often not sort of appearing I found so interestingly pervasive because when the artist who's a fantastic artist was doing the cover for the first Bell Singer book, the, the international editions, the American editions, they, they did a different cover, but um, in the UK and elsewhere, it's an illustrated cover. And I swear that this guy who's an amazing artist kept struggling to get various as a sort of a 35, 40 year old woman. Really? She kept either appearing too old or too young yeah. in the shots. Yeah. And um, when my publishers were selling international rights, one of the things that some of the international editors who were vying for the rights would say to them would be, well, you know, couldn't you just change her to be 25? And couldn't there be like a, a romantic interest between Kellen and Ferius?" Uh, my publishers, uh, uh, grace to them, uh, you know, refused that. Um, but, but, but I just thought that was such an interesting phenomenon. Like it's yeah. as if we just don't know what to do. Anyway, that was my, that was my long winded answer.
1: No, because that's okay. Because <laughs> it jumped out at me. And I liked it. I liked that you were writing about a female protagonist and it, Just if I could share, I'm going to share one thing here. I have a note here. I had interviewed Elgin Williams. Oh, my gosh. I have no sense of time. Whether it was early this year or late last year. And he's a fantasy author out of the U.S. And he was telling me that he noticed that when he was reading novels to his daughters, there weren't many that showed females. In like um, adventure type situation. And he just thought, okay, th- th- this, this has got to change, you know, it, 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 so that, that's why I, I was, I was, I was glad to see that. And just another thing that resonated with me with various is in that opening chapter, you know, you have in quotes, be a good girl now. And, you know, and the, it's <laughs> just shaking my head. People can't see me shaking my head. Let me just tell you how many times I've heard that. And, you know, Farius is that's I don't want to say that's not Farius, but Farius is feisty. Mm-hmm. And and she's she's to me, it was almost like she was regrettably doing this because she didn't want to get caught. Right. Mm-hmm. So, OK, so, like I said, it just did it. it It meant a lot to me to read that, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, my spouse and spouse he notices things. We have two daughters, and he just he know he grew up in a boys' world, all boys, and he sees things how things can be are different, right? Mm -hmm. So okay, now the Eldracia map in the beginning. Okay, I I enjoy art. And I, I, I tell y'all the fantasy authors I interview, you guys and your maps are so damn good. right? Like this is such a cool map. Right? Oh, thank you. So, um, like, how how did it come about? Like, was this your vision that you spoke to an illustrator with, or how did this map come about?
0: Yeah, ma- so fantasy maps are a funny thing um, because they kind of lead into the what I think of as the sort of the two types of fantasy writers, and I was on a Couple of panels, I think twice, with um, a really great uh, author, science fiction and fantasy author named uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky. and he's okay. very, very successful now, and and a really lovely guy. And he, he often talks about like when he's going to build a fantasy world or sci-fi world, he starts by building out the world. He builds the map, he builds the whole thing, all the all the all the sort of the cultures and and the technology and the history, and 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 then he goes, now what stories are going to emerge from this world. And I'm the reverse. Okay. Like I start with a character in a dark cave in effect uh with a flashlight and I only create as much world as shows up in the beam of that flashlight. Okay. Um and the reason I like to write that way is because it means you know people often ask the question, you know, why do you write fantasy? Um and, You know, as opposed to other other genres, and I think almost all of us today are sort of multi-genre authors in, in one sense or another. But with but for me, the reason I like writing fantasy is because if you have an idea, if you have a theme you want to explore, like in *Way of the Argosy*, like exploring this issue of like what is it, how are human beings supposed to fight against you know whether it's something that is just seems categorically more powerful, whether it's magic or technology, or one day we're, you know, we're all worried about having to fight the AI, the artificial intelligences yeah. that'll yeah. soon take us over, whatever else. You know, how do we do that? That you know, if you're writing in a contemporary setting, you are sort of bounded. You can't explore it too much because the more you explore it, the more it seems like you're writing a polemic, the more it seems like you're giving speeches to people about how they should live. But in fantasy, you can build a world that just reflects that question right where it's just so pervasive there's so in this case there's so much magic and there's this particular history of the refugees and there's these particular types of people and there and there's a, the, and there's the argosy who you know these wandering philosophers who are like we're only ever going to use human means like the talents of human beings to try to navigate through the world and and survive Uh, And you can do that. And so I love that. And so that for me means that I always start from what is more a blank canvas. What ends up happening is eventually you hit the point where you've stuck, you know, you've stuck like two completely different countries in the exact same spot by mistake um, because you haven't been sort of focusing on it. And (laughs) and an editor or, or, or often it's just fans will write you and say, you know, we really want to see a map. And that's where I'll often have to kind of formalize it. And typically, you know, I think this is often the case. You draw a terrible sketch of where you think things are, and then you go to somebody who who actually understands how you create maps because it's not just the visual side. There also has to be a logic to sort of the effects of mountain ranges on topography and things yeah. like that. Um, and someone did it. And and for fantasy authors, writers who are out there who are going, "Oh my god, how do I do this? And how do I do this if I don't have a publisher who's paying you know for for all these things?" Uh, what's really fascinating? There are some amazing tools out there, and they're very cheap now that will let you build an an absolutely stunningly gorgeous fantasy map without ever having to illustrate it. Yeah, and and I I don't know the names of them. I, I don't know if Inkscape is one of them. I, no, I think it's a, a different name. But if you look up fantasy map generators, you'll find software that will let you do this in amazing ways. And, and you know, it's it's totally and – it, and it's a fun exercise. I'm still – even with the software, I'm still terrible because I just – I, it, my wife and I—one of the things that we love about traveling is that we both have absolutely intolerably bad senses of direction, so we're <laughs> always getting lost everywhere. Oh, no. <laughs> um, which means we're always getting to see different things yeah. than we're supposed to see, um, yeah. and which is which is what we love, right? That's yeah. part of the adventure. Um, but as a consequence of that, uh, I realize I'm terrible at actually, uh, you know, designing maps. So I, I focus very much on designing cultures, yeah. right? Because that's what kind of fascinates me. And then I'll work with someone to do to do a map.
1: So you you uh, mentioned something earlier, and I'm going to pick up on it now. Has the Hollywood director seen this map?
0: <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure he has. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, yes. Those. You know. The, the, I mean, I don't want to make it sound bigger than this. Uh, when you know, when you if you have novels that are passably successful. Um, you know often um, producers will come along who want to option the rights and optioning a book for for those who aren't familiar with this just means that what they do is they kind of they, they pay you money in order to have a period of time during which they're the only people who can try to go out and develop a script or or put together a package so that they can get money from a studio to go and um film pilot or or something like that so you know of, of a if, if for every novel of 100 novels it's well for every I don't know million novels there's thousand novels that are published you know a very small number will get optioned of the ones that get optioned a very small number will go into development of those a very small number will actually shoot something of the things that actually get shot very little a very small number of those will actually appear on the screen uh and of those a very small number will be any good um so the odds are always unbelievably bad but (laughs) I uh but I've come to realize recently um to some degree to my detriment um but I was talking to my wife about this last night um I have been approaching my career entirely as an adventure um okay. meaning I'm I'm never approaching it in terms of okay, I have to grow this thing and I have to really be careful and I have to watch what I say to people who are you know powerful people because I need I might need their help or I need this or I just view it constantly as an, as an adventure so if it's you know, it, if something big happens, it's wonderful, and if something terrible happens, that's just sort of part of the adventure of it. But I, I tend to think that that publishing and, and being a novelist um, is is best approached without too much of a sense of uh, I, I have to get this or I have to have this happen because you have so little control of that. Um, but, 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 from and 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 the reason I think that that's it's good to approach it as an adventure is if nothing else ever happens, and i I, was, I, I said this before, uh, you know, um, I'll still go, I'll still always remember the wonderful conversations I had with you know, sort of these Hollywood people about about the books and what the books mean, and like. Sometimes that's just great on its own, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Nothing else happens. I, I still got to, I still got to spend that time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then I get to move on and write another book. Exactly.
1: You're It's, you're being yourself, right? You're being mm-hmm. yourself and you're like, you said, adventure, you're going on the ride, you know, mm-hmm. where it'll, where it'll take you. Yeah. Excellent. Okay so thinking of the adventure thinking of Farious, she's being tortured <laughs> she gets tortured
0: <laughs> right there's a, little, there's a little bit of light torture in there
1: but you do it very well it oh, it yeah. didn't um it didn't make me go right like you just it's like you took it to a certain point mm-hmm. and then you let the readers imagination do do the do the job so it's very cool to read about the silk spells breath magic sand magic and the inks. So, can you explain that was the one thing I really like can you explain to the listeners what the inks are?
0: Sure. So, so in the world of of uh, so in Eldrazi or the world of Spellslinger um, you know, which now has sort of eight books in it. One of the things I really wanted to do was I wanted there to be not just one kind of magic. I, I wanted magic to be like all the things in our own world where it's very culturally dependent. And so there's different cultures, there's different forms of, of magic. And I wanted to try to do that in ways that were sort of respectful and not sort of not sort of repeating something or cribbing something that, that from somewhere else where I could. Um, and so with the Gentep, the Gentep live in a fairly desert area of, of this world. and so a lot of the magic um, uh, is sort of the conceptually built around the the things that they have, you know, so sand, breath, blood, silk, embers, you know all these things that would be very sort of important. And the way that their particular magic worked, um, is that this terrain, which is one of the reasons why they fought so hard and, and killed off the Maďek to take it from them, okay. is that this particular land has these areas that are called the oases, and they're not oases the way we think of oases, you know, as a, as a place where there's you know fresh water in, in a sort of desert environment. They are places where the ores, the metallic ores underneath the ground, have this potency that the, this magical potency, and so, but to harness that potency, you need to kind of bind those different those six different forms right iron magic breath magic blood magic uh, silk magic sand magic etc you have to bind them to yourself so that you you become attuned to them and they do that by making inks from the the raw stuff of these ores because the ore itself is too potent it would it would kill you to touch it and so they they make these inks which they then tattoo these these bands around the mages and and as one of the things that comes up a lot for the for Kellen in the first Spell Singer book, is these young well, all they're trying to do is what they call sparking their bands, and that's when the the tattooed band around their forearm for a particular form of magic, so, you know, will ignite, and and that's when they now have control of that magic. And so the six different forms of magic that the Gent deal with, each of which governs a different area: sand magic kind of covers time, silk magic covers the mind, um, you know, iron magic uh, deals with like physical forces. Uh, And things like that. That's what they uh, like. To to be a mage at all, you have to spark at least one of your six bands to be. Uh, a particularly to be a, a war mage, you need to spark two of them, uh, and then very few people will ever spark more than that. And that sort of is why there's so many different kinds of mages, even among the Jan And that's just only one form of magic in this world. But that's uh, that's where the inks come from. And okay. I perpetually get people writing me to go, you know, um, can you, you know, can you show, you know, give me a diagram of all the sigils for the different to make the different bands, which I don't do. <laughs> But 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 there but my publishers have done some in the past and so yeah I, I I'll have people who email me uh, photos of their tattoos they literally get tattooed shantep bands.
1: Well, as you're talking about them, you're saying about the orc and you know using the the earth and what they're getting from the earth, and I'm thinking to myself. He's talking about fiction, Joe. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You it comes across so convincing. And I'm I'm reminding myself this is fiction. Like yeah, okay. That is so cool. Okay. Now we have the Tuta alabat. Oh yes. Oh wow. That is a powerful scene. And the emotion various is experiencing and I know when I was reading it if you could explain what the tuta alabat is and I will just say that at one point with various I was thinking don't do it don't do it don't do it is she gonna do it right like like okay okay. so take it away the tuta alabat
0: well, so this is a, this is a sort of a strange scene. The Farius's journey goes through different sort of stages in this book. Um, And one of them is when she's trying to, in each, um, in each stage of the book, basically Ferris is trying to survive by the way that we all tend to do, especially when we're young by adopting a certain approach. Right. And so, She first goes, she's early on the book. She's rescued by knights, uh, a pair of knights. There are no knights in Eldrazi. These are foreigners who've come from across the ocean and they rescue her. And she tries to emulate them. She tries to live as a knight and totally, and it doesn't work. Um, And then at one point, you know, she tries to live as a thief and she ends up getting caught by this gang of thieves. And she realizes that, you know, who sort of put her on mock trial for, for having stolen in their territory and she um she is sort of basically forced to fight um this kid who is much much bigger than her and so um having learned some fencing like sword fighting um from w- when from when she'd been temporarily adopted by these knights she she sort of tries to construct this fake story because because it's a fake trial. These thieves don't know how a, these young thieves don't know how a trial is supposed to work, and so she starts throwing around these sort of legalistic terms, yeah. you know, as if they're as if they're very standard, as if everybody must know them. And then the the sort of the 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 thief who's acting as the magistrate kind of pr- goes along as he wants to pretend he you know he knows the law right because it's yeah. like that's part of you know giving himself some status. And so she she sort of describes as tuta alabat, which is a, a which is a, a term from across the, the ocean, um, which she learned from these knights. That it has to do with trial by combat. Yeah. And she knows that they're going to love, she knows these things are going to love the idea of trial by combat, right? Because I mean, someone's going to fight, someone's going to get hurt. And, So, but she then sort of specifies, well, you know, there's very specific rules about Tutalabad, as everybody knows. And the rules are each party has to have a stick and the stick has to be exactly this long. And so she picks a stick length that's actually perfect for her height, but not for her opponents. Um, And then she says all these rules about what you can and can't do that everyone's supposed to know, which therefore gives her this huge advantage, right? Um, In part the same way that That, um, you know, I used to fence um, and one of the beautiful things about fencing is there's a thousand different ways to win depending on who you are. So I used to fence, sometimes I fence a guy who was 80 years old and he would win a lot of the time because what he had that other people didn't have was patience and strategy. Okay. Um, and, you know, and so no, within the rules of how a fencing match works, he could do a lot of things that he might not be able to win at otherwise, but there's other people that happen to be very fast. Um, sometimes, uh, people who are very short can have, uh, can use that to their advantage. People who are tall. And so she sort of constructs the rules in this sort of, you know, of this tutelabat that she's you know, saying that everyone's supposed to know, um, to sort of help her. And so as the fight goes on, she starts to win, But as she starts to win, unbeknownst to her, all of the trauma, all of the unfairness, all of the beatings that she has suffered in her life start to come out of her. And she starts to go too far to the point where she's going to end up killing this this other person. And, um, And that's and that's one of the places where she realizes where she's going to have to realize that um that there is no way to ever really get revenge on the people who hurt us mm-hmm. uh you can only enact revenge on everybody around you yeah. um and so that's uh and so that's why that scene gets goes from being kind of um uh, a scene of uh, of Jeopardy for Farius to a scene that's almost playful to a scene that's almost um, triumphant to a scene that w- comes perilously close to getting very dark.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it, was it was good. It was very okay. good. Yeah. And then there's a surprise at the end. Okay. Yes. And uh, so there's Farius. You know, there's Arissa. Right? Yeah. And Petal is the other person who fairies is fighting, and it was just for me. It was, it was strong. It was empowering, and it was nice to see a female character as not one that needed saving, but she was like just as you explained, you know, her strategy her making up the rules. You know, it was, I really, it was so nice to read. It was very nice to read and it was thrilling. Oh, okay. We have a little bit of time left here. So I just want to ask you, I understand you're thinking of writing a mystery thriller novel. Is that, is that what I saw on your website?
0: Well, I've actually written a few, um, oh. but I may not be very good at it. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, yeah, I always love uh, mystery novels, um, and especially heart, uh, noir is a is a style that that yeah. really appeals to me. Um, and so I've written a few different ones, and my my poor hapless agent, hapless is the wrong term, but my poor <laughs> benighted agent, uh, shall yeah. we say, uh, is you know is constantly trying to sort of sell these very quirky, sort of weird mystery novels. Um, and, uh, which is unfortunate because the, the, the mystery genre, especially in the UK right now is incredibly rigid and regimented. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a sub niches and it's just like very crisp and clear. You know, it's supposed to be about a detective inspector and he has to have a younger uh, detective sergeant that's up and coming with him. And he has to have a drinking problem and a failed marriage <laughs> and he's having trouble uh, making a connection with his daughter. And it's like you see that pattern just repeat all the time. Yeah. Um, and so I write these kind of weird, bizarre, you know, mystery novels where um, there's one that I I love and my agent, my poor agent loves but it's, it's a, you know, about a private detective who's actually uh, hired to fight a, a fencing duel um, to get back some uh, photographs from uh, after um, a bad breakup where this sort of this guy has, has got photographs of his ex-girlfriend and the family, the ex-girlfriend, he's threatening to publish them unless, you know, unless uh, someone you know she has someone champ you know champion him in a in a duel so that he can win back his honor because he's kind of this guy is a little nuts and obsessed with honor and so they're hiring this private detective because he happens to have um been a competitive fencer in 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 France in the past um and so I love that kind of stuff like I love mystery stories where things are where things got kind of are a little bit strange and the context is yeah. strange and the case is strange um uh but I don't know that uh uh, I, but but publishers are tend to be in in the mystery genre right now tend to be a little bit rigid in their categories. So okay. I don't know uh, when and if that'll be out. But if it's, if but if he doesn't sell it this year, I'll I'll self publish it. So it'll be out there. My 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 weird mystery novels will be out there soon.
1: Cool, good. Yeah. <laughs> so I know you have another appointment.
0: Oh, well,
1: that's okay. I've got okay. a few. Minutes. Okay. So what I was wondering when I read that because. I'm work, I'm working on my third thriller novel, but I have this very rough draft of like a parallel universe um it's involving nature. And then I was thinking about you writing fantasy and your mysteries. So what I was wondering was, what do you think? It, what, it, do you think there's a connection? Or do you? You had mentioned about multi-genre authors. Do you feel that authors, they just it doesn't matter the genre. You just you go where the story leads you.
0: Yeah, I tend to. I tend to think so. I think you know any story can be told in any genre. However, that genre is going to affect the sort of the flavor of it. It's going to affect the the context in which we understand that story. Um, You know, you can have um you can have a a romance story that's dealing with murder if you want there's lots of suspenseful romance stories and, and things like that you can have a, a murder take place on a on a spaceship you can have a murder take place in a fantasy realm you can have a murder that takes place only in a in the mind of a of an author um you know it, uh, you know the 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 cla- the, the the classic novel uh, that every author secretly wants to write is, is one in which the protagonist is another author, yeah. um, <laughs> which I had a publisher tell me a while back, I was pitching him, a, um, I was pitching him this, uh, sort of psychological suspense thriller that I thought was absolutely magnificent. Yeah. And, and he let me go through the whole pitch and because it was about these two writers, one of whose, um, who, you know, had this sort of, um antagonistic relationship of reviewing each other's books and it became this sort of literary cause celebrity the way these two authors would trash each other's books but then one of them commit apparently committed suicide as a result and so the other one ends up having to live in hiding because all his fans keep going at one and go after her um, except that she then sees a man finds a, is sees a manuscript she's asked to edit. Um, to, as a sort of a ghost editor, um, which she becomes absolutely convinced was written by this guy who's supposed to be dead. And I thought, this is fantastic. And yeah. and I had this whole thing and, they, and I, the publisher is a really nice guy and a friend. He I said, at the end, he said, nobody but writers want to read about writers. <laughs> um, but, but to, but to your question, I, I think that mis- that the, 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 that a mystery is always a wonderful way to explore a world, whether that world is a fantasy world or a sci-fi world or the world of academia yeah. or the world, you know what I mean? It, it always creates that thing that's pulling forward. So when the first book I ever tried to write, the first novel I ever wrote was a terrible mystery novel called Skeletons in the Cloister, which my agent, uh, when, I, when I eventually years later sold Trader's Blade and, and had an agent, she said, oh, I could sell that. And I said, we haven't read the book. It's not very good. And she said, yeah, but the title's great. And that's where I really learned a lot about the publishing industry. Um, But it's just it's it's a it's a lovely it's a really good place if you you know to kind of pull yourself in, um, both because it it you know when when for your listeners who are struggling to sort of write their first novels, what what is always really the hardest for a lot of people is is to create a sense of forward movement, a sense of something pulling us along, yeah. right? It's very easy to go, oh, I really want to write a fantasy. And so you start writing about like sword fights and something else, but, it, but it'll feel very static. But if there's a murder, if there's a question, if there's something people don't know and need to find out, that will always feel like it pulls it along. So mystery is a really nice kind of um, meta genre in a way to to work with. and th- yeah. And that's why I tend to do it. And that's why I'll tend to, to really like, I also just think mysteries are such a wonderful way to explore character. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just, okay. Let's just crank it up. Now, what are you going to (laughs) do? Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like I'm thinking about my character. Okay. I'm going to throw this at like now, now what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fun question. Now you are the only author I shouldn't say only, Well, yeah, you are the only author who on your website, you have rock and roll as a subheading, which I thought sometimes I feel like I'm the only person left in the world who likes rock. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, oh yeah. Give me some ACDC. Give me mm-hmm. some Foo Fighters. Queen, in excess. I saw you like the Beatles. My Mm -hmm. favorite Beatles song is come together. Like I can hear Mm -hmm. that in my head as I'm, I even say it. So talk to me about why you love rock and roll and your own performing.
0: Oh, just, you know, performing music live. It's the thing I'll almost, even when I know it's going to suck, because some gigs are just terrible. You just know they're going to be terrible. (laughs) But I'll almost always choose it over anything else. It's not that I want to be like being a musician more than a novelist. I love being a novelist. But when you're performing on stage, it's the only thing I've ever done where the three kind of parts of, of the sort of the complete self are in action. Like you're physically doing something, like there's a physicality to performing music live there's an intellectual challenge to perform music live like you're constantly having to be aware to think how things are working and there's an emotional part to performing live because if you can't summon the emotions you can't perform the song very well and so having those three things going at one time especially when you're on stage with other musicians and you get that moment where everything's just in sync to me is is like a, a drug that if they could package it i would just become the first and best customer forever yeah. Um, I love uh, music is always important to me as a writer as well. Like the, the way that I wrote Trader's Blade, which is the first, my first novel got me my first four book deal. It launched my career was I would go on uh, runs like I, 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 because it's good for you. I'm terrible at running, but I would listen to music all the time and I'd find a song and I would just play the song on repeat, like for half an hour at a time at, because that would be the soundtrack to a scene. And it would just build that up for me. Yeah. And so and, and I find rock and roll is particularly, always feels particularly good for that. Um, uh, for me, it's just the, it's just the thing that kind of pulls me along. But I did want to say, by the way, because you mentioned Queen, uh, who are absolutely fantastic, of course. I heard a song for a band I didn't know existed uh, recently, a band called Foxy Shazam. Oh, really? Um, if you've never heard of or seen Foxy Shazam and you like Queen, like check them out. And there's I'm they have really a song seen. called Holy Touch that I just, as soon as I heard that song, I was like, oh my God, like this is like, It's not just Queen Reborn because it's got some elements of like classic rock and roll and ACDC to it. but uh, And their front man is just unbelievable um, as a singer and a performer. So, So there you go. There's Foxy Shazam's worth checking out.
1: I will check that out for sure. For sure. Okay. Well, Sebastian, anything you'd like to add?
0: Uh, no just uh it's been really lovely chatting and i have to say I'm, I'm i'm always supremely honored uh when i when i kind of get to come on a, a podcast and 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 someone's actually you know kind of read read the book and and just uh and so i just really appreciate all the all the, the the time we've spent together so
1: good good well i can tell you i was reading some of it i printed some and i'm reading some online and i just i gate like my reaction you know like i think of that tuta tuta mm-hmm. alabat where it's just like it, it, i think that i was i had it on my screen and i remember just again that physical where my face is getting closer to the screen <laughs> right you know it's like okay is she gonna do it is she gonna do it yeah so anyways thank you so much this has been a pleasure and uh yeah um I, I'm looking forward to seeing what else. You've got so much coming out. Like so many so many novels,
0: right? You're very busy. I I I'm pretty busy. Uh yes, I've got uh, Malevolent 7 is coming out early next year, which is another fantasy novel set in a completely different world. It's uh wow. sort of Magnificent 7 with wizards blowing things up. Um and then uh, Play of Shadows comes out next fall, which is the first in the new Greatcoat series. Um uh which is a strange swashbuckling fantasy set in a the theater and uh i have a book called crucible of chaos that'll probably come out later this year for fans of the great coats it features a new great coat um yeah and uh and uh, another short story collection coming out uh this year so yeah it's it's uh you know as you know it's it's the kind of uh business where you have to um you have to either uh make it incredibly big with one book which i think it would be depressing as hell because then you just are constantly stressed yeah. or you just got to you know do what you love and, and actually create a lot of books
1: yeah and i think why why am i doing this i'm doing this because i love writing mm-hmm. you know? and um no one can take that away from you and just keep writing yeah okay well i want to say uh thank you to creative edge for assisting with this podcast and sebastian have a great great day.
0: Thanks so much. Okay. Bye-bye.